Well, congregation, again, I invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Our text this morning will be 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And then we will consider the first portion of verse 1 in chapter 2 in our afternoon time together. But one more time to your reading, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Once again, hear the word of the Lord. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. And may God add a blessing to the reading of his word and now to the preaching of his word. Well, Grace Reformed Baptist Church, greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and greetings on behalf of the saints of Sentinella Baptist Church in Lawndale, California. We do pray for you all quite often and we pray for your pastor as the Lord continues to use him. This morning I have um, brought my wife with me. I know last time I came alone and I dealt with the wrath of many of you, and rightly so. So I brought my wife and I brought the Espinozas as well as a sacrifice, so they might stay here with you guys. Well, this Lord's Day we will be in 1 John. I'm currently preaching through 1 John at um, Sentinella. It's been, by the grace of God, it's been a, it's been a treasure for us. The exposition of God's Word has been profitable to God's people. And congregation, when the Word of God is preached um, with boldness, with truth, it's always a profit to God's people. 1 John, though, is an interesting letter. It's really it's an interesting letter packed with some pretty weighty doctrine. I mean, the first just the first four verses, there's so much doctrine in there, and I'm sure many of you guys know. It's an interesting letter. It's um, interesting as it's commonly referred to as a general epistle, a general letter. That is, it's a letter that is written not to a particular church like um, Romans or Ephesians or to a particular person like Paul's letter to t- letters to Timothy. And it's not even really written to a particular demographic even. But instead, it's a, it's a letter penned by the Apostle John written to all Christians and primarily new converts. And really, in the first century, everyone's kind of a new convert. But specifically here, primarily Jewish converts in the first century he's writing to. And if, if one were to read the, the first letter and, and look for a word that summarizes 1 John... The word is probably going to be love. I think the same thing can be said about his gospel. When you read John's gospel, it's, it's a little bit distinct from the synoptic gospels, from uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Acts. It's kind of distinct in the sense that it's very much a, uh, a gospel that's about love over and over and over again. It's very similar, the first letter. Love of God. And love of neighbor. And, and John's really writing and, and, and showing how 
love distinguishes the people of God and everyone else. The love of God, love of neighbor, brotherly love, specifically by way of the second chapter, distinguishes the people of God from pagans. When the first and second table of God's holy law are summarized, we can call that love. We can say that that is love. That is love of God, love of neighbor. And the truth is, when we think of the requirements of God's law, as we just did with just the ninth commandment, we soon realize we do not love our neighbor like we ought to, and we do not certainly love God like we ought to. And I think the question of anyone who actually cares about such things, which everyone should, especially those in Christ, I think the question comes when when we meditate on why we don't love God like we ought to, or our neighbor like we ought to, or even ourselves, biblically speaking, like we ought to. The question, I think, needs to be why. Why is that the case? Why is this such a problem for me? And those in Christ, especially those who have been walking with the Lord for quite some time, know the answer to this, and that answer is sin. The answer is sin. It's it's nothing new. We're living in the last days, as the Scriptures teach, where sin is rampant. Evil is called good. This is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. And all this may be true. This may be the current disposition. But what does that mean for us? What is our responsibility as the people of God when it comes to sin? Are we simply to just identify the the problem? Are we just that person that walks by seeing uh, the, the faucet leaking and say, hey, faucet's leaking. Do we ignore it altogether? Do we deny it? Do we say that it's something of the past, doesn't exist anymore? Or do we confess our sin? Do we confess our sin? This morning we will consider verses 8 through 10 and give attention to, first and foremost, what we are ought to do. We are to confess our sin. But prior to that, we're going to look at these two false statements that were made in the early church, and still are made today concerning the doctrine of sin. There are deceivers of men who make many false statements concerning sin. We will begin today by looking at two of them and closing by considering the true confession concerning sin. And those first two that I'm referring to are by way of verse 8, and verse 10 in our text this morning. By way of verse 8, the lie, the false statement concerning sin is that we have no more sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Some have coined this today sinless perfectionism. The whole idea that sin is no more today is absolutely garbage. And we'll just flush that out and show that by just a few proofs. But the second false statement concerning sin is by way of verse 10. The lie that we haven't sinned. Sin, what's that? Never heard of it. If you can't wrestle with sin, can't come to believe 
You can get rid of it. Why not just deny it altogether? Many do today. This is folly. The ignorance and suppression of righteousness. One needs to come to the conclusion that there is no sin or that we haven't sinned ever is deep. These false statements are clearly made by those who are without Christ. These are not statements made by Christians. These are statements made by false professors. These are professions made in sin. Professions made in sin. Here, St. John warns us of the dangers of these statements. And lastly, we're going to close our time together. We'll consider the one true confession. And I believe this is the one true confession. There are many true confessions. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm being very specific here. This is the one true confession, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. As this is the only route the Christian is to take with regards to sin. If you find yourself in sin as a Christian, what are you to do? There's not, there's not multiple answers. There's one biblical answer. Confess your sin before the Lord. Turn from your sin, look to Christ. That's another way of saying that. This is the confession of the tax collector, who the scriptures say stood far off and would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is a man who knows himself to be born in sin, one who knew his own sin, and subsequently, congregation, and more importantly, it's not enough to know that you were born in sin. It's not enough to know that you're a sinner. That's not enough. But subsequently, what you have in the example of the tax collector is someone who humbled himself before the Lord that he may be exalted by the Lord. Someone who confessed his sin. This is a confession of one that knows they need Jesus Christ. My prayer this morning is that every tongue in this room will confess their sin to the glory of God. That truly is my prayer this morning. It was my prayer for my congregation when I preached this sermon, and it is my prayer for you. Let's first begin with the first false confession. Before we get to the good news, we need to deal with the bad. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is, again, a a profession that one makes in sin. And it's in sin because it's a sinful profession. It's a sinful statement to make. It's a lie. If we say we have no sin, we lie. Period. The beloved apostle closes his chapter here with a series of ifs. And these ifs are based on what he has already said under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he's kind of building a case here in his prologue. Up to this point in the letter, what, have we, what, what, what has been said concerning the Lord? First and foremost, we've, we've considered who God is, right? The, the first 
portion of the prologue, verses 1 through 4, tells us who God is, His Father, Son, and Spirit. He is light. The next subsequent verses in this chapter tell us how God has revealed Himself. He's revealed Himself by way of nature, and He's revealed Himself by way of His Word. The first chapter tells us who we are. We are made in the image of God. We are sinners. And then subsequently, John has already told us how we may be right before a thrice holy God and that there is salvation in Christ in Him alone. Verse 7. Yet this morning we're going to continue in this examination of how man can be right before God by considering sin and that which comes from the denial of sin, starting with first the profession that one is without sin anymore. If we say that we have no sin. Beloved, this, is, this statement is such a lie on many accounts. If we say that we have, it's such a lie on many accounts, many accounts. But I just want to give a few. This, this statement is false as it is contrary to that which we see in creation. So the statement that we have no sin is contrary to that which we even see in creation. Just like the statement, there is no God, is ludicrous on the basis of nature alone, it's ludicrous to look outside, view God's handiwork, and walk away saying, no, chance, or something of that sort, you know, evolution, Big Bang, whatever you want to throw in there. It's ludicrous to look out into nature and say there is no God. It's likewise just as ludicrous to look out into nature and say there's no sin. It's delusional to believe that we are in a world without sin. As the world that we live in shows forth the effects and consequences of sin on a daily basis. Want an example? Ecuador. We just prayed for Ecuador. What is that? An earthquake? Did Mother Earth just get angry and... No. We know that. We know what earthquakes are. We know what calamity is. We know what sickness is. Those are consequences of the fall. Those are consequences of sin. It's delusional to believe that we live in a world that is without sin. As the effects of sin, the consequences of sin, are clear as day. What does the world have to do with us, one may ask? Well, we too, like the world, are not God. We are not the Creator, but rather we are His creation. A creation that, unlike Him, is affected by sin. When sin entered into the world, which we will elaborate here in a moment, the entire world experienced change in some way, shape, or form. Sin impacted, first and foremost, man being made in the image of God, and from there permeated throughout all creation. No part of creation, as beautiful as it may be, is apart from the effects of sin. Even decay, barrenness, these, these things are, are products of man's rebellion. 
We live in a fallen world where we have examples time and time again of these consequences. We think of death. The fact that we go look out into the world and see people dying shows forth the effects of sin. People die, therefore sin. And this is just with re- reference to the first death. This is just with reference to the first death. Remember when God made the covenant with Adam in the garden, he clearly said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you shall eat, it, eat of it, you shall surely die. This was the consequence Adam faced. He did not have sin in the garden. You could have, he could have chosen to obey God, to avoid death, to preserve the ninth commandment. And in doing so, would have been eternally blessed, not only him, but all of his posterity, all that would come from him. But instead, Adam failed and was told by God, what? Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till, the, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. To dust you shall return. Indeed, beloved, all return to dust today. No one can avoid death. Even those who want to say that there is no more sin, that it's, it's not a real thing. You can't say that about death. You can't say that you're going to die. So you can't say death is not a real thing. Death makes it very clear that sin is still ever present. Second, disasters. Earthquakes, tornadoes, floods, monsoons, all of these things. We've coined them, our culture has coined them uh, uh, to call them natural disasters. These aren't natural disasters. These aren't, these aren't just things that we're going to chalk up to nature, right? Like when you see a lion eating um, an elk, right? Oh, that's just nature doing its course. What are we talking about? As if we, we speak as if God doesn't exist. These aren't natural disasters. I understand why people use that term, but... Again, these are consequences of sin. Consider the words of the Lord written to the prophet Amos. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. Sounds like the Lord's in control of nature right off the bat. Right, Amos? I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. When their vineyards and gardens were struck down, they didn't look up into the sky and say, oh, there's another natural disaster. They viewed it as the judgment of God as a consequence and an effect of the fall of man. This world, as observed by both the regenerate and the unregenerate, is very much in shambles, naturally speaking. You don't need to 
have the eyes of faith to see the effects of sin in this world. In all of this, we are reminded that we are still living in a fallen world where sin abounds. God's judgments, in other words, against sin, are still very much evident, whether we see them or not, whether we call them something else or not. Certainly, this is not this was not the case prior to sin entering into the world, as this is not how God describes Eden whatsoever. But again, man has sought out many schemes against him, and this is what we have as a product of man's sin. To deny that there is still sin when you have so much evidences before you is foolishness. And if the judgments by way of the elements are not enough, consider the testimony of sin by way of sickness. Why do people battle with sickness? Did God create Adam and Eve to be sickly creatures? Well, surely you know the answer to that is no. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And on the sixth day, or excuse me, so the evening and the morning were on the sixth day. Man created in the image of God, like all things, was created good, upright, no sickness, no heartache, no blemish. Yet after the fall of man, what do we see? Sickness, heartache, blemish. Again, this is a consequence of the fall. But secondly, this profession is false as it is contrary to that which God has revealed in his word. So nature tells us that something like verse 8 is absurd in and of itself. Like we don't need the holy scriptures to affirm verse 8. We can look outside and see, yeah, sin exists. To deny it is crazy, for sure. But we have greater testimony than nature. We have the bare words of scripture And to put it bluntly, if we say we have no sin, we make God out to be a liar. Because God in his word addresses sin. He defines sin. So he gives us a basis of understanding sin. And he tells us the consequences of sin, both temporally and eternally. We make ourselves to be wiser than God when we ignore the express commands in Scripture. This profession is false as we see it just completely addressed time and time again, as I mentioned in the Bible. Yet the denial of such truths brings forth greater issues For the image bearer of God. To deny sin altogether puts one in a very precarious state. As you have to suppress the truth that God has revealed to you in such a deep way in order to continue to press on forward. In other words, in order for someone to completely outright deny sin, they essentially have to live in a fairy tale. They have to create their own reality in their mind and serve it 
To deny sin is to engage in idolatry. It's to engage in idolatry. Yet what do we have in addition to this denial? Verse 10, we have yet another denial of sin. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say that we have never sinned. Likewise, congregation, the belief is a lie and one that is evil as it denies the presence and reality of sin. Is sin even real? Isn't it all just made up? These are questions that you hear raised by godless people, by atheists. These are questions raised by men who seek to be God. These are not earnest questions. These are ultimately rooted in the father of lies himself. And why do I say that? Well, congregation, again, I know you guys probably go to the garden all the time with Pastor Barcelos, but going back to the garden, I mean, what was the impetus of the serpent? He wanted Eve to deny God. He wanted Adam to hate his wife and ultimately hate his creator. And that's precisely what happened. And how did it happen? It happened by way of the denial of God's law. All Ten Commandments were broken in the garden. Not just the ninth, as we've looked at this morning. All Ten Commandments. And it all came down to the question of whether or not sin existed. Did God really say? Is that really true? Is there any morality even? These are all godless questions raised by the father of lies. If one denies this, they have a basis to deny original sin and the imputation of Adam's sin to all his posterity. If one denies that they've ever sinned or never sinned, however it is put, they make God out to be a liar, as this is in direct opposition to his word. For it is the word of God that makes it clear, makes clear a few things concerning the origin of sin and the origin of sin as it relates to man. As we have already concluded in our first point, sin begins not on the testimony of the New Testament, but rather from the very beginning, the testimony of the old. Adam in the garden rebelled against the Lord. And Paul takes this, this rebellion, and brings it to light in the New Testament as it relates to all of us. He says, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, sin isn't just this concept we see in the New Testament or only for a short period of time. But sin is spoken, out through, spoken of through the entire Bible. The first two chapters of the Bible talk about sin time and time again. And the Revelation deals with the time where sin will be dealt with once for all. And everything else in between the Genesis and the Revelation, what do we have? The effects of sin. And subsequently, Christ conquering sin. The point here is to say that sin has always 
stained our history. And to deny that is just to deny history. It's just to deny God altogether. But secondly, the testimony of the scriptures by way of the giants of the faith make clear the realities of sin. The question of how, how do Christians deal with sin, how do believers deal with sin, needs to be answered. Well, it can be answered many ways, but needs to be answered by way of the scriptures, looking to those who actually did deal with sin in the scriptures, like David, a man after God's own heart. What does David say concerning sin? How does he talk about sin? Does he say that it doesn't exist? Does he say that he has no more sin? That he is now sinless? Consider Psalm 51, where he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. First of all, we need to note that David is speaking to the Lord here. David is is praying to the Lord. Listen to his prayer. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. From my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Dare I say, this tells us about 70% of the information we need concerning the doctrine of sin. That this was a man that was born in sin. He was brought forth in sin. That he is presently a sinner. Wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He knew who he was to go to with regards to his sin. Against you and you alone I have sinned. He talks about what sin is in the sight of a thrice holy God. And done this evil in your sight. He speaks on the fact that God is not the author of sin. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. If God is the author of sin and then judges sin, well, he can't be blameless. He's brought on a problem and he's also brought on a solution. But the problem of sin is an us problem, congregation. It is our problem. Like every time you look at sin in the Old Testament, it goes back to the person that sinned or the a corporate entity that sinned, maybe Israel. It's always a us problem, an image bearer of God problem. And David, in those three verses in Psalm 51, makes that so crystal clear. So you read David, you read the testimony of the giants of the faith and how they viewed sin. And you ask yourself, does this sound like a man that would come and say, I have not sinned any longer or I have never sinned? Of course not. This is a man that knows sin has permeated to his very core. Though he is not as evil as he could be. 
He knows that there is no good in him to offer God. And yes, he believes he was born this way, and rightly so. I was, bought, I was brought forth in iniquity. This is the same man who knew himself from the testimony of Scripture to be fearfully and wonderfully made. He knew that he was a blessing from the Lord to his mother. I mean, that's, that's like important as children. We know that we are, God has given our parents us as a blessing to them. That doesn't negate the effects of sin. That doesn't negate the realities of sin. And that doesn't lead to denying sin. It can't. So if the profession of the the false statement, the statement in verse 10, that we are without sin is true, what do you do with the testimony of the man after God's own heart? Again, may we never make God out to be a liar with our lips of deceit. And lastly, our final proof concerning sin, before getting to the last point in our outline. If we are without sin, even for a period, even for a small moment in time in our lives, like, yeah, I was without sin in my 28 to 29 range, even if that would be said, then God would be unjust in the condemnation of those who are made in his image. This is a big one. If we are without sin in any sense, then we can accuse God of being unjust for condemning even one person. I added this qualification on our third example as some who say we have no sin in the context of um, not, not really of themselves, but of their children. I don't know if many of you are familiar with this, but some churches hold to this doctrine of um, age of accountability, where the child should not be punished by God until there's a particular time in that child's life where you could say they are now accountable to the Lord. Some have thrown ages like eight and grounded this, uh, or, or 13, grounding it uh, with regards to the Jewish law and the old economy. But the whole idea here is that God leaves us responsible for our own actions, and therefore wouldn't judge any child until he or she shows themselves to be accountable by the use of reason. The Bible speaks nothing of this, though. There's a problem right off the bat. The Bible doesn't give us an age of accountability. The Bible doesn't say, hold your children accountable when they get to this age with regards to their sinful behavior. The Bible speaks nothing of this. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that we are all guilty before God in need of His grace. We have all sinned and fall short. Short of what? Of the demand set forth by God's holy law, His perfect standard. Congregation, do you know when we ought to be exhorting our children to confess their sin before God? Not when we, not when we believe that they have enough reason to start formulating sentences together. Not when we believe that they finally have a 
Biblical Westminster Shorter Catechism Understanding of Sin, a Doctrine of Sin, we need to teach our children, to exhort our children to confess their sin before God when they first begin to speak. Like when they first start to talk. When they first begin to understand that they can communicate with their words. We're important, mommy, daddy, important. Not as important as the Lord. We need to be teaching our children to speak to the Lord from the very earliest stages in their, in their upbringing. And the very first things that they should be speaking to the Lord is first and foremost confessing who He is. Right? He's holy, He's just, He's love, and who we are not, and why we need Him. That's where confession of sin comes in. This age of accountability idea is bogus, and it's a false comfort for those who are raising their children to the fear and admonition of the Lord. And if it was true in any way, shape, or form, then verse, not, verse 10 has truth to it. It doesn't. There is none that can say that they don't have sin. Even David, again, knowing himself as a grown man, reflected back on sinful baby David. Much more can be said here, but I want to take us to our final point. And that is that there is one true confession at the heart of John's letter. There's one true confession at the heart of John's letter. It's in verse 9. Congregation, you guys need to memorize this verse if you haven't already. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here, it's not that we question the origin of sin. It's not that we question the perpetuity of sin, that is the ongoing nature of sin. These things are made clear for us by way of nature and by way of the plain words of life. The question is, beloved, have we confessed our sin and are we confessing our sins? Twofold question. Have we confessed our sin? This, this may be asked to everybody in the room. Whether you are, if you are in Christ, the answer has to be yes. But this may be asked to everybody in the room. But this latter question, are we confessing our sins? Is our testimony that of the tax collector? Or is it that of the Pharisee? Is our testimony that of the apostles? Is our doctrine of confession in line with the apostolic tradition? Or are we likened to the lost who hides their sin, who puts their sin under the bed or in the closet or just continues to suppress it until they forget about it? This is the question that we must ask ourselves. Is our testimony of that of the apostles or that of the lost? 
if we say that we have sinned? If the answer to the question of whether or not you sin is yes, praise God. That's a start in the right direction. If you are in Christ, and this answer is yes, then again, praise God. For if the answer is indeed yes, for those who belong to Christ, then this first must mean that you have been led to the cross. It must mean, first and foremost, that you have been led to the cross. As failure to confess sin leads to what? It leads to more sin. That's a, that's a dangerous one. I don't think we realize that. When we don't confess our sin, what happens is not just... We can forget it. You can forget about it, maybe. Maybe you've done something heinous, and you can continue to lie to yourself like it never happened and bury it. Yet what you're going to find is not grace. What you're going to find is not mercy. It's going to be more sin. Because sin, when you don't confess your sin, you put yourself in a position to lie. You put yourself in a position to be manipulative. You put yourself in a position to sin more. So if you fail to confess sin, you're not going to run to the cross. You're going to run to the little hole that you've dug, that you found false security and comfort in, burying the sin that you know you need to confess. Failure to confess sin leads us to ourselves, leads us back to us. You see that the born-again believer, when he's committed, when he's sinned against the Lord, must know that that sin will destroy him. Therefore, you ought to want nothing to do with it. And we must go to the only one that can actually do anything good with regards to sin, namely Christ. You see, if we fail to confess sin, we only come back to ourselves where we find not the Lord of glory, not the righteous one, but another sinner. Yet for the one who confesses their sin, they open their eyes and see the foot of the cross. They open their eyes and see the one that has died for their sin. If you confess sin, it means that you have been led to the cross it also means that you have received the righteousness of Christ. Listen to the verse again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can that be the case? Because as we confess our sins, we are confessing them to the one who is faithful. The one who has dealt with sin on our behalf. The one who intercedes for us before the Father. When we go to the cross and confess our sin, we are reminded, congregation, hear this, that our sin debt was canceled on the cross, past, present, and future. 
And then we, rem- we remember those very sweet words in Romans 1, or Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for us. Why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because he's already solved their issue with regards to sin on his cross. And as he bore the wrath of God, as he gives the, as he gives the sinner the righteousness that they do not deserve, he pours out his blood for them. They may be cleansed of all unrighteousness. The confession of sin is a constant reminder of this. I think there are many examples in Scripture that we can go to. One that I think about is the Lord's Supper. Like, where is, when is, when is the best time to confess your sin? Anytime. 100%, anytime. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to sleep at night. Married men, before you go to bed, you never go to bed with your wife angry, likewise. But when we think about how we've spent our week and the Lord's day and the receiving of the means of grace, how about when the sacrament of the supper is brought before our eyes and we have the blood and body of Jesus Christ before us? What better time to confess our sin and be reminded of God's faithfulness to us than the God-ordained means of grace. If you confess your sin, it's an indication that you are striving to enter into the narrow gates. We have a responsibility. We We not only have a command to confess our sin. We're not only commanded to confess our sin, but as Christians, in order for us to strive for eternity, in order, us, in order for us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we have to do it confessing our sin. Like we have to walk this Christian walk as a confessing people. This is what it means to strive with regards to our battle with sin, to mortify sin. To confess our sin before the Lord, be reminded of the faithfulness in Him, and the cleansing of Christ's blood as we're seeking to glorify Him in all that we do. Confessing your sin shows forth a hatred against sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, why would we, as the people of God, confess our sins? Because we hate sin. Congregation, you have to hate sin. You have to hate sin. When we, when we are battling with a particular sin, whether it's something ongoing, whatever it may be, we must think that it was our sin that brought Jesus Christ to the cross. Like when, when, um, when Peter is before the Sanhedrin in Acts 5 and he tells, tells them that um, you killed the author of life, that hits home for me because I think of my sin that brought the Lord to his death. Now don't get, don't get confused. The Lord of glory willingly took upon himself human flesh, willingly 
took the death that we deserve, willingly gave up himself. Yet it was our sin that killed the author of life. We must hate sin. And lastly, if we confess our sin led to the cross, receiving the righteousness of Christ, being reminded of His faithfulness, striving to enter into the narrow gates, showing our our changed heart and changed view towards sin, we lastly show a true love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The confession of sin shows us and reminds us that Christ is worthy. Why should we be confessing our sin with one another, walking in repentance, exhorting one another unto good works? Because Christ is worthy. Because He is worthy. He is a worthy Savior. To confess our sin is a reminder that we love the Lord Jesus Christ who first loves us. And if the answer is no, if after reading verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, if we walk away saying that we want none of that, we don't need to confess sin. Or if we have believed the lie in verse 8 or 10, we must know first and foremost that the Scriptures are clear. All have sinned. All have sinned. There is none who is without sin. The consequences of sin is death, both in this life and the next. God gives the consequences of sin in His Word. And it is the first and second death. And to deny something like verse 8, or verse 9 rather, to deny the one true confession brings forth great harm to the soul. Because if you do not confess your sins, you will die in them. If you do not confess your sins and give them to Christ, seeking the forgiveness that only He can offer and the comfort that only He can offer and the righteousness that only He has earned. It is not as though your sins will be forgotten by God. You see, God does forget sins. He forgets the sins of the just. As far as the east is from the west. Yet for the unjust, there will be a day of judgment where all of your sins are brought to light and you will have to give an account, thought, word, and deed. At that point, there will be no confession of sin available to you. This time will be a time of judgment. And if you hold your sin to death and die in your sin, you will hear the words, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. Friend, I do not want that for you. 
Confess your sins before God, and he will forgive you. Sin will lead you to death. That is what sin does. Yet Christ offers you life today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, you have given us lips and a tongue to glorify you. But as your word makes clear, as Paul is writing to the church in Rome, our mouth, our throat is like an open grave. Our lips are covered with venom. Lord, we don't preserve the truth, promote the truth, speak the truth like we ought to. And especially the case when considering our own sin. Lord, I pray that you would work in each and every one of us to confess our sin before you, knowing that you are faithful, knowing that you are just, knowing, Lord, for the people of God that you are a loving Father. And your forgiveness is ever ready. Lord, we thank you for your word. As it is an ongoing reminder of our need for you, of our need for honesty, for truth. The truth found only in Christ. Lord, we ask that you would continue to be with us this Lord's Day as we have time of fellowship and enjoy a meal together and prepare our hearts for the next service. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.